today, we're going to be talking about this big issue that happened in our country that is kind of like politically and from a legal stance, probably one of the biggest things that's happened in the last 50 years. You know, when you think about major watershed moments in, in legal history, I think the last one that was this big was the enactment of Roe v. Wade. Uh, and just to kind of, uh, I'm going to talk about a few things today. I want to talk about kind of the, the legal aspect of it. I want to talk a little bit about the history of it, what's actually happened, and then what, it, what does it mean for us? What should we expect going forward, and how do we respond? And I want to be very clear that what I don't want to do today is tell you, um, A, that I'm some legal constitutional law expert and that I've got all the answers on a constitutional decision. I will say this. I did read 200 and whatever pages of, of comments from the judges themselves. So there were there's nine judges on the Supreme Court, and there were, I think, five opinions that were written, uh, which that's a lot. And they were long. You know, some judicial opinions are five, six, ten, fifteen pages. I think the the primary decision, uh, opinion was something like eighty-one pages. You know, this is not a small thing, and it also has huge impacts for how all um, laws potentially are examined in relation to the Constitution going forward. Potentially, it has that that impact. So it's huge. But again, I'm not a legal scholar, but I did read it. Um, and I think I understand what they're saying, right? And I think you can read it too. And so the first thing, as I mentioned last week, you know, this happened right before, I forget if it was Thursday or Friday of the week before. And we came in Sunday and, and Ed prayed for our country and for us. And I said, I'm not going to talk about this today because I haven't read it yet. You know, and I just want to encourage you, however you're engaging with others about this, don't speak beyond what you know. So I'm going to try not to speak beyond what I know today. And there will be things that I say, I think, and those will be things that I'm saying, I'm pretty sure about this. And this one seems pretty solid. I know this. Uh, but be informed when you speak. I think it's our, our culture encourages us to have an instant reaction to everything, right? And it's kind of like you think about, you know, I'm, I'm in my 40s, so I use Facebook, Right? <laughs> So on Facebook, this thing pops up in front of you, and then that might be the last time you ever see it. So if you don't respond right away, you will never get a chance to respond. And just last night, I primarily go on Facebook these days to find pictures of my children when they were little. That's primarily what I do. So yesterday, I was in my office finishing up for today, and I went on Facebook, and I looked at those things, and I was like, I'll scroll for two minutes. And it really was two minutes. It used to be I would scroll for two minutes for half an hour. Now it really is two minutes. And I saw this thing, and I read it, and I was like, and it was my old Sunday school teacher, and he was being inflammatory. And I was like, oh, I hate this. And so I wrote a response. And without sending it, I just kept scrolling because I knew no good comes from sending it, but I got a little catharsis from writing it. Right? I was like, I'll show him. <laughs> I'll show him to be inflammatory. <laughs> right? But I will never see that post again. So I've missed my chance unless I go looking for it. But it's like that with everything. It's like we're encouraged to have a, a hot take for everything. And I want to encourage you in Christ. Like, you don't have to have a hot take on anything. You don't need to. Don't be caught up. So I, I was talking to Sonia. She's like, we need to respond. And I said, I know. I just can't do it this week meaning last week. I'm just not ready. I need to process. I need to think. I need to pray. I need to read. And so that's what I did this last week. And I listened to other smart people about it. Some things I listened to twice because they were so smart about it. I was like, I want to hear that again. And I can share some of those with you if you're interested. But first of all, what in the world happened? So you guys know there was this decision, Dobbs versus, what is it, Jackson Women's Health in Mississippi. And the court ruled, and the way the court rules is they have uh, uh, total agreement, concurring in part, or dissent. And so five judges agreed fully that Roe v. Wade should be overturned. One judge, the Chief Justice Roberts, 
agreed that the Mississippi law that prevents abortion after 15 weeks should be upheld, but he didn't want to overturn Roe v. Wade. And then the three dissenting judges, justices, um, argued that Roe v. Wade should not be overturned and that the Mississippi law, therefore, should be struck down. Because Roe v. Wade, what it said in 1973, I think, uh, was that uh, the question before the court was, is there a constitutional right for women to have an abortion? Is there a constitutional right for this? And before I get in, let me back up a little bit. Before I get into that, let me just say, um, you know, it's 4th of July weekend, right? And you guys know what Independence Day honors. It's the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Now, the Declaration of Independence is not a law for this land, but it is really the document that is the foundation of our Constitution. It's the document that points to, precedes, and gives some philosophical framework for our Constitution. And in that document, first it says that uh, there comes a point in time, essentially, where people can no longer take the oppression of others. And then the very next things it says is that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with unalienable rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's, the f- that's really the foundational document, even for our Constitution. What it says is that everyone's equal, that their rights are not granted by the government, their rights are granted by their Creator. And at most basic, those rights are the right to life, the right to liberty or freedom, and the right to pursue happiness. Now, you can imagine how in a fallen world, those rights may conflict with each other at times, right? And some of them are really basic. Some of them are really obvious. So I have the right, I have the free, I have freedom, right? I have liberty. So that means I can do whatever I want, right? Wrong. (laughs) It doesn't mean I can do whatever I want. It means I can do whatever I want to a point. There's a limit on that right. And one very obvious one is, I don't have the right to take one of your lives without justification, without reason. You know, if if you're attacking me, I can defend myself. But my freedom does not overrule your right to life. Right? My freedom to, my, my right to pursue happiness cannot infringe upon your liberty. And so these rights come into conflict all the time. Uh, but what the question before the court in Roe v. Wade was, it, does a woman have a right to abort a child to end a pregnancy? And the court ruled that a woman does have a right. Now, this is really important because I hear this mistake over and over and over and over in the media and when people talk about it. Roe v. Wade never granted the right for women to have an abortion. Roe v. Wade was the court's opinion that women had the right to get an abortion. Our government, and no government really, grants rights to anyone. We have rights, and the government's responsibility is to recognize them. Does that make sense? And I think you'll see why that's important, but just as a believer, to understand that my rights don't come from the United States government, they come from God. I would also add that I think it's important, and especially in America, the United States, because we're so... um, in this country, if we, especially if you've grown up here, we're so attuned to our rights to remember that those rights are rights that we have before other men. Those are not right. We don't have rights before God. God actually has, God actually has the right to take your life if he wants to. You don't have the right to life before God. And God calls you to be a slave and servant of Jesus Christ. You don't have a right to liberty before God. And I would even say that you don't have a right to pursue happiness before God. But no other human being has enough value, worth, uh, glory to remove any of those rights from you. Only God. Great example, book of Job. Job says, God, how could you do this to me? I didn't do anything wrong. And if without using the legal language of modern parlance, God basically says to Job, you don't have standing here. You don't have the right to bring a lawsuit against me. Like, I'm, I'm the... I'm the the judge, I'm the jury, I'm the defendant, I'm the prosecutor, I'm, I'm the, the legal team, I'm just like, you don't have a right. 
I'll do what I want to do. Uh, that's, that's God's message to Job. Basically, he says, who are you to ask me how I, why I did something? Now, God is gracious and he's good, but he, he doesn't owe us that. But before one another, we owe it to one another because we're all equal, because God made us equal. So Roe v. Wade was the opinion of the court that the Constitution of the United States guaranteed the right for a woman to have an abortion. Now, what's important to understand is that even when it was written, most of the people who agreed with the outcome disagreed with the reasoning. And the court also wrote at the time that they were hoping that this would settle the issue and that the United States could stop uh, being divided and stop having or, or in the controversy and just move on. And we would just move on. But the nation did not move on, as we all know. All right? And as many of you are aware, uh, some of the most vocal uh, proponents of removing or, or, or negating that opinion have been Christians. And the reason that we have, as you know, many Christians have done that is that, is that we believe that there's a right to life, that all are created equal. And we can look to passages in Scripture like uh, Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, where God says, uh, let us make man in our image. And so God and made man, male and female, in his image. That every one of us has the imprint of God on us. That you think of, uh, you think of, uh, uh, you know, when, when you have a, a coin, you know, when Jesus gets that coin and they say, should we pay this tax to Caesar? And Jesus says, well, whose image is printed on that coin? Whose, whose image is imprinted on this thing of value and worth? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. He says, well, that belongs to Caesar. But you give to God what's God's, what belongs to God. Well, what does belong to God? Well, you, you belong to God. You've been imprinted with the image of the God of the universe. That coin was just printed image, with the image of Caesar. So we each carry the image of God in us. And so, so many Christians, not all, by the way, but so many Christians have argued the case that, it, that freedom is great and the pursuit of happiness is wonderful. But it cannot be at the expense of another person's life. But Roe v. Wade said, well, you can. You can do it at the expense of another person's life in the first two trimesters of pregnancy. And the idea was, well, in the third trimester, generally, a baby is viable outside the womb. And so then their prospect for life is greater than in the first two trimesters of pregnancy. And that didn't go very well. There was a lot of legal controversy for years, and different courts understood things differently. And then there was this other case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey in the 90s. And in that case, they actually overruled Roe v. Wade because they said that whole trimester thing doesn't work. Um, really, viability is at a different time. I think it was 20 weeks, 21 weeks. And um, so they said, well, we're agreeing that women have a right to an abortion, but we're going to change the ruling about when they're allowed to have an abortion. Interestingly, both in Casey and in Roe, they never attempted to show constitutionally, not really, how it was that this right was found in the Constitution. And here's the thing that we need to remember as believers is that we live in a country, the United States of America, and we live in a kingdom, the kingdom of God, right? We live in two jurisdictions. And there are certain ways that we have to operate in one jurisdiction and certain ways we have to operate in the other jurisdiction. Some of them overlap and some of them don't. But for example, when we talk about a legal framework, a legal decision like Roe v. Wade, we can't come to the courts and say, we think this is wrong, overturn it. We think this is morally wrong, it's ethically wrong, we need to overturn it. The court's actually not allowed to think about those things when it makes a judgment. The court is responsible for looking at the Constitution and the way laws have been, cases have been argued in the past, and determine what does the Constitution say about this, 
not how do the people feel about it. In the kingdom of God, we absolutely have to think about what is right and what is wrong, regardless of what is constitutional. So you can imagine a situation where we might do one thing if we were operating as a justice on the Supreme Court because we're obligated by, by our oath to operate one way as a justice, and we might operate a different way as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You see what I mean? But even for all of us, sometimes we take our faith arguments to the public sphere to a public that doesn't understand them. Now, probably apart from social media, most of the people you encounter in the state of Massachusetts don't share your faith, don't share your beliefs about God, about humanity even, and they will not understand a faith argument. But they might understand a legal argument. Likewise, there are many of us who don't understand the legal arguments because <laughs> we don't know, we don't know, we haven't availed ourselves of that kind of information and we only understand the faith arguments. So what happens when you've got people arguing from a faith perspective who don't understand the legal perspective and people arguing from a legal perspective who don't understand the faith perspective? What happens when those two start arguing with each other? Hmm? Nobody listens. Nobody understands each other. You don't get anywhere. You don't get anywhere. We're going to talk in a minute about how can we respond, but I'm just kind of throwing these things out. So I already said, be informed. Be informed before you try to engage the world with this. Um, and a little bit of that today is I'm trying to inform you a little bit. Uh, it's interesting that Roe v. Roe v. Wade was largely argued on um, a right to privacy. But then Planned Parenthood versus Casey kind of jettisoned that and argued primarily a right to due process. Well, what does that mean legally? And how is it that the current court can say that neither of those support abortion? Well, you might want to learn about that. You might want to look those things up. You might want to read what people say about them. You'll actually get quite an education by reading the opinions uh, in the court because <laughs> they're very detailed. Uh, we have this we have this game at home called Stare. And every time I looked at that game, I thought, Stare. Well, every time I looked at that game this week, I thought, Starry Decisis. Do you know what Starry Decisis is? Some of you do. Some of you obviously don't. <laughs> it's like the foundational legal issue that was, that was judged, or one of the major issues judged in this case. Starry means to stand. Decisis means decision. To stand by previous decisions. So is the court bound to stand by the previous decisions of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, or are they not? Well, man, now every time I see that game, I'm like, stare, stare. I'm like, why does it say stare? Oh, it says stare. You know, it's like you've got to learn about these things. So be informed. Um, let me stop there for a minute because I'm sitting on this stool because I want to indicate to you that this is not a monologue. So let's stop for a moment. I know this is not like a thorough uh, explanation of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey and what's happened this week. But any questions or comments so far? By the way, if I get anything wrong, feel free to just raise your hand and say, <clears throat> and then I'll know that you're there to correct me, and I'll gladly uh, give you the floor. But any questions or anything so far? Okay. So... What happened with Dobbs, this, this latest case, um, is that the, the court decided that the entire reasoning of Roe was wrong, and therefore the reasoning of Casey was wrong, and that the Constitution does not, in fact, give anyone the right to abort a child. It doesn't say that a woman doesn't have the right to abort a child. It says the Constitution does not recognize the right of a woman to abort a child. It's a really important thing. From a legal standpoint, I don't think anything in Massachusetts has changed or will change anytime soon regarding abortion law. 
in the state of Tennessee where I grew up, there was an immediate change. I think they had what's called a trigger law. As soon as the ruling came out, Tennessee enacted a law that made abortion illegal uh, for uh, when, unless the woman's life is in danger. I think there was a, an exception for rape and incest, and I think that was it. It wasn't like after six weeks. It wasn't, you know, it was these three exceptions. Other states have timed laws. They have no laws. They have protections. They, like each state has their own rules. So the reality of what the ground right now is that, and by the way, Roe versus Wade was not a law. This is also really important. Some people say we need to reenact Roe versus Wade. You can't reenact Roe versus Wade. You'd have to, Congress would have to pass a law or the states would have to pass a constitutional amendment guaranteeing the right of an abortion for women for that ruling, for, for the outcome of that ruling to come back because you can't, you can't re-implement a, a court decision. You have to create a law now because what the court has said is, is that the Constitution doesn't say either way whether an abortion is allowed or whether it's not allowed. And, so what and what they also said is there are these competing interests. There are competing rights here. Women do have a right to bodily autonomy just like men do. People do have a right to privacy. People do have a right to pursue happiness, so to speak. But also... There are these unborn children who have the right to live. And so how these uh, competing interests get worked out is now up to the states. And at some time in the future, potentially, Congress or some type of... There's multiple ways to amend the Constitution, some constitutional amendment. So for most of us right now, uh, living in the state of Massachusetts, nothing changes. So, for example, um, from Mother's Day to Father's Day, we collected money for, for uh, Your Options Medical. Your Options Medical is a center that helps particularly young women, mostly minority women, who are struggling um, because they have an unwanted pregnancy. And Your Options Medical allows them to get ultrasounds, to see images of this baby that's growing inside them, what they would call making an informed choice. Uh, Your Options Medical also, through the support that we and many others give, provides clothing, diapers, medical assistance to women who want to uh, continue their pregnancy. Uh, it is, it's those types of things that actually have impacted the abortion rate more than the legal environment in the United States, too. I don't know how many of you are aware of this, that abortion rate right now is lower than it was the year before Roe v. Wade came to pass. So in 1972, there were more abortions when it was illegal than up until this point when it has been legal. Now, right after Roe v. Wade, the number of abortions increased significantly. Part of that might be that there was more reporting, but it was just easier to access, and so abortion rate went up. But since, I think Jimmy Carter, I think since Jimmy Carter, if you look at every presidential term, every four-year term, the abortion rate went down every single four-year term, interestingly, until 2016. In 2016, we had some of the most restrictions on abortion in the country since Roe v. Wade was enacted, and the number of abortions went up. And so we might want to understand that the key driver for abortions has probably never been the legal environment and probably has been predominantly the types of resources that are available to women, how much hope they have in being able to raise a child, how much uh, support they think they're going to get in raising a child. That probably has far more to do, a far greater impact than the legal, than the laws. That's just something to be aware of as a believer. If you feel strongly that we should protect life, that's something you should know. That has a huge impact on how we respond. Um,
I do want to suggest to you as we think about these uh, competing rights that really every single right that we think about having, whether it's in this country or just in general, they're all founded on the idea of a right to life. In reality, without a right to life, none of the other rights really matter. So like a right to property, um, a right to freely engage in commerce, a right to travel, um, right to bear arms, right to uh, a trial by a jury of your peers, you know, all these rights that we think about, all of them essentially are based on the right to life. And I have looked, I've searched, if anyone knows anything other than what I'm about to say, please tell me. I have looked to see, is there any culture that has insisted on a right to human life that was not exposed to, and I would say, the, the Western, dominant Western religion? Like, I don't know of any, I haven't found any culture that has in, emphasized and guaranteed a right to life that, that didn't have the words, God created them male and female in his image. So the best I can determine, it is a biblical idea that we have a right to life. I mean, if you look at nature, what does nature tell you about life? Is life valuable? When, when, um, when a lion eats a gazelle, do you put that lion in prison? No. You think, oh, he's just doing what he's supposed to do. Right? When, you know, there are certain animals that eat their young, do you incarcerate them? No. Like, when you look at nature, basically what you get is survival of the fittest, Right? If you're not capable of protecting your own life, then you don't get to keep it. And when you look at history, do you, from history, do you get the idea that life is valuable? Someone just like won something on Candy Crush or something. <laughs> Kudos to you. Um, do you get that from history, that life is valuable? I mean... Who's, whose lives have been protected in history? You know, most people in history, I mean, this is, this is really crazy to think about. Most people in history, first of all, were either slaves or some type of serf servant where their lives were bound to somebody else. And even whether they lived or died was bound to somebody else. Uh, history is marked by massive amounts of warfare from tribal warfare to empire. And basically the idea was, uh, if I can kill you, then I get to take whatever you have. So forget about life, you know, right to property, right to life. Again, like if without that, none of the other matters. But basically, if I can defeat you, I can take what you have, so I'm incentivized to kill you. So history doesn't teach us that humanity has a right to life. And even what's so fascinating is that as more and more the the Western world, the Western legal world and philosophical world is separated from religion of any kind, then you see these philosophers and legal scholars trying to argue for the right to life without this idea that we're created in the image of God and they can't find one. And so they start changing the definition of who has a right to life. So, for example, in the abortion debate, one of the things that's come out is this idea that, well, you're not really a person unless you have autonomy, self-awareness, and you, and you can uh, take care of yourself. Well, then, I think that you wouldn't be a person until at least a few years old, first of all. Like, babies don't have autonomy. They don't have the ability to take care of themselves. And I don't know when you gain self-awareness. I don't know. I mean, I think you're 30. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's so true. Or what about the mentally ill? Are they not persons? Not mentally ill. Um, um, uh, mentally disabled. Are they, are they not persons? Do they not have rights? You know, the uh, argument of, uh, well, you know, you're, you're, not a, you're not a person if you're not self-aware. Well, is a person in a coma 
a person? Are you a person when you're asleep? I mean, it gets really slippery. And you can see a scenario where certain animals would have more of those attributes than some human beings. So there, a dolphin is a person, but this human being isn't. It's, it's, really, it's really sticky because uh, without revelation, without a scripture, without religion, without faith, our whole legal system literally would fall apart, I believe. Because you can't find those truths anywhere else. And Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence largely, he was a deist. He didn't really believe in the Bible. He like believed in a God because he didn't have a viable, um, a reasonable alternative. He lived too early in history to think about Darwinism and to think about you know, Big Bang. And he, like, he basically didn't have a viable alternative to God, so he was a deist. He's like, there, I guess there's a God, but he doesn't do anything, and he doesn't say anything, and I don't believe him, and I don't follow him, and I don't trust him. And yet he even wrote that our rights were endowed by our Creator because he knew there was nowhere else to find them. So this is huge. I know we're getting into like this philosophy of law or rights and stuff, and that's not necessarily where I intended to go, but point is, like understanding these things impacts then how we view what's going on in the world. So when I read the Dobbs decision, again, all 81 pages and all the concurring opinions and the dissent, it's a lot of reading. It's definitely worth your time. It's not that hard to read. Like it really is not... It's not all legalese. Like, you will understand what it's saying, even if you have to look up a few words. I read it, and I was like, this just makes sense legally. It just makes sense legally to me. Now, I'm a person. I approached the Constitution probably very similar to how I approached the other document that I spent way more of my life studying, the Bible, which is that I assume that the words that were written had a meaning and that they still have those meaning today. Whereas there is an entirely different branch of not only Bible study, biblical studies, but also legal studies that says that the meaning can change over time as the situation changes. And it really does boil down to that legally. Do you believe that these words' meanings are fixed or do you believe that they change over time? And if they're fixed, then I don't see a right to abortion in the Constitution. That doesn't say anything about whether I think women should be able to get an abortion. You see that? They're totally separate issues. And what I've seen is a lot of Christians viewing this legal issue as something that it isn't. They're viewing it as a moral issue. And I'm not saying there's no morality connected to it. Like, so I'll just put my cards on the table. Um, I'm one of those people, I think, in very rare circumstances, abortion should be allowed. It's just me. But I think that the right to the life of the baby is real enough that it supersedes the right for a woman to abort and end that pregnancy. That's me. I come to that from my reading of Scripture, from my experience of life, um, I know that there are people in this room probably who've had abortions. Um, I know that there are probably men in this room who've had, uh, who've lost a, a child from through abortion. I, there's probably people in this room who would seriously disagree with what I'm saying right now, and some of you will wholeheartedly agree. And then some might have some different position altogether. All that matters. It just doesn't have any impact on what the Supreme Court should do. Because their job is not to be the nation's morality. Their job is to uphold the Constitution. Now, because of the view I have, I'm actually really happy that our nation does not have an obligation to do something that I believe, to allow something that I believe is not the right thing to do. Justice Thomas, in his, in his um, he wrote a, uh, I guess it's called a consenting opinion, I think is what it's called. 
he wrote an opinion that he agreed with the, with the majority opinion, but he wrote his own opinion as well. And he wrote in there that um, uh, there was a law in the 1600s that said if a slave uh, ran away from the south, where slavery was legal, and ran away to the north, where slavery was not legal, that if they were found, they had to be returned back to their owner. And he said the, what was required to overturn that law, that wrong decision, was a war. It was a war where I don't know how many people died in that war. It's the deadliest war in American history. I'm going to go with Evan on this. Something like 650,000 people lost their lives in the Civil War to overturn that decision. And he said the loss of life is, is hard to fathom. But in this decision, since 1973, there have been something like 63 million children in America who've lost their lives. And he says the blood that has been shed and around this decision is just incalculable. And I mean, my heart breaks when I hear that. I believe the Lord's heart breaks when he thinks about that. And, and all that said, I have so much compassion for women who feel like they need an abortion. And that's another thing here is when we think about how to respond, to remember that I don't think there are some examples of people who just seem to revel in abortion, right? Like they think it's the greatest thing that ever happened. I don't think most people are in that place. Most people who want to re, who who are upset about this decision, they don't revel in abortion. They just they just think that the the interests of women and the interests of that unborn child should be treated differently. And a lot of them believe that because they've been in difficult situations where they were scared themselves, where they were, where they were afraid of being alone and bringing a child into the world. They were afraid of being uh, permanently connected to an abusive boyfriend or husband. They were afraid of um, you know, not being able to finish their education or be able to provide for a child because they're 16 years old and they don't know how they're going to do it. Like I, like I have a lot of compassion for that situation. And so part of, part of what I want to say today is if you're happy about this, man, be happy. But let's not, be, let's not gloat. And I'm not thinking of anyone in here. I, I say that because, in part because I've watched it happen. Like I've, I've watched my feed where people are gloating. I've literally seen people I grew up with in the church I grew up with, Christian people whom I had a great deal of respect for, who said things like, well, anything that makes these libtards happy, uh, upset makes me happy. I mean, can you imagine Jesus Christ saying something like that? Like, no. I can't imagine Jesus Christ saying anything like that. You know, I, I think of the Jesus Christ who saw a woman caught in adultery and everyone was ready to stone her. And he came and, and he said, you know, you're forgiven. He protected her. He protects the vulnerable. And so first of all, I would say that if you, whatever side of this you're on, most of the people on the other side of it are not your enemy. I'm a firm believer that most of the people in this country were not enemies of one another. There are, some, there are people on some extremes that, that want to be your enemy. But most of us, we're not anyone's enemy. But if you do encounter an enemy... What is the Christian response to enemies? Love them. And I will say this. You can find most of the Christian ethic you can find in other world systems. Again, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I haven't found the ethic of love your enemy in any world system other than the Christian one. I haven't found it. So it is the quintessential ethic of Christianity. The defining ethic of Christianity is love your enemy. And I'm watching Christians spewing hate on their enemies. 
And what, what does Jesus say that when you call your brother a fool, what is that the same as? Mm, I heard it. It's like murder. So how can we be pro-life and do what Jesus calls murder at the same time? So you probably have heard the argument, like if you're going to be pro-life, be pro-all of life. And what they mean is pre-born, born, children, adults, seniors. And I'm, I stand firmly in that camp as well. Man, be pro-life for all of it. You know, I think that we can, there's, there's room for discussion about how to go about it, but we can't be pro-life, I think, if we're not also willing to care for the people who are already born who need help, especially those young mothers, especially those young pregnant women who are wondering if they can be mothers. That'll have more an impact on the abortion rate than any law we can pass. But I'm here to add, a little, uh, add another piece of that. If you're going to be pro-life, be pro-life in your heart. Be pro-life according to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a standard of eth- is an ethical standard that none of us can match, and yet all of us must aspire to. Jesus wasn't, you know, I've heard people say, the Sermon on the Mount shows you how impossible it is to be righteous, so you need to turn to Jesus to get saved. And I would say, yes. And Jesus also expects you, once you're saved, you have the power of the Holy Spirit, you have the freedom of Christ, you have, you know, the, everything we've been talking about in Romans, all of it is like, hey, you'll never earn God's favor. And when Jesus, when you accept Jesus as your Savior, now finally you have the capacity to start doing the right thing. So Jesus also expects us to be righteous, like the Sermon on the Mount says. You know, so when I... You know, I say, if you're going to be pro-life, be it all away. Don't assume the worst intentions of your opponents. Don't scorn and deride and, and judge people who've had abortions. Don't think you're better than someone else because you have a certain view or you have a certain history. Is this jiving? Does this... Yeah? So, what now? I mean, one is, here, don't expect much, much to change except that people are more angry than they were two weeks ago. Be ready for that. Because people are more angry than they were two, year, two weeks ago, uh, probably consider your context when you say what you say. Not because you don't stand for your convictions, but sometimes it's really just okay when you encounter someone who has a different belief, especially one they hold very strongly, to just say something like, hey, tell me about it. What do you think? And just listen to them. Show them the concern of a, of a neighbor or friend or whatever it is. And that can be the most loving thing you can do to stand for the whole of our conviction of life. Because maybe it's just not the time for an argument. You know what I mean? Uh, And then let's support the organizations that actually have a direct impact on the number of abortions in this state. And then finally, just recognize that because of what happened in, in Supreme Court is that now there's going to be this extended national, state by state, but also whole nation, uh, process that will not always be pretty of trying to figure out where we go from here. There will be protests. There have already been violent protests. There have already been, um, uh, for example, we, I talked about it last week, there have been threats, and some of them realized, against these um, crisis pregnancy centers simply for them saying that you don't have to get an abortion. They're not disallowing anyone, but they're saying you don't have to and they're being attacked. You know, pray for them. Pray for our nation. Um, I just read this morning, there was, I guess it was in the Atlantic, an article about how our nation is in some ways more divided than it's been since the Civil War. That scares me. That's scary. 
I think it's probably true. And it's not that we have more differences of opinion. It's that the way we carry ourselves in our differences has changed. And unfortunately, I see so many Christians that are completely willing to engage in a very unhealthy way of disagreeing. And so I want to encourage you, disagree, but do it in a way that you think Jesus would do it. I had asked Sonia to come up and share a little bit. As she's coming up, any, any questions or thoughts on any of that, Esther? So the question was, uh, I've seen all these comments that say things like, uh, now women's rights are being taken away by a bunch of white men, and now we have to worry about the right for a gay marriage, and what was the other thing? Yeah, so the, there's, <coughs> there's kind of a, le- a legal aspect of this and a philosophical one, but let me address the first one first. Uh, the, you know, why are all these white men making decisions about women's uh, bodies and choices and things like that? So I would have two responses to that. Uh, Number one, the Supreme Court is not nine white men. It's not. There are women on the Supreme Court. There are different races on the Supreme Court. uh, So it's not. Second thing is the ruling was not that women do not have a right to have an abortion. The ruling was that the Constitution doesn't decide either way whether women have a right to an abortion. So I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people who are, who are, pro-right, pro-abortion, I think a lot of them have largely misunderstood what this was about from a legal perspective. They very much get what's going on from a visceral perspective, but from a legal perspective, this was not an outlawing of abortion. It was just saying the Constitution doesn't protect it, and so the the voters get to decide. The people get... That's what Alito, uh, Samuel Alito, who wrote the majority opinion, he said, it is not the place of the, of the Supreme Court to decide whether this is a right to be protected or not. It is up to the people and their representatives to decide. So he's saying, let's use democracy. And there's more women in this country than there are men. So if women want, they can vote their interests some of the most vocal opponents of Roe v. Wade have been women. So it's just not true that like men are just taking away the rights of women. That's just not how it is. And again, the Constitution does not grant any rights. The Constitution only recognizes rights. And so the court said, we don't see where the Constitution recognizes this right. The second half was, what about other, decision, other uh, rights that people have had? Um, So specifically mentioned were um, the right to gay marriage. Um, Yeah, there were a few others that were mentioned in the opinion. I'm trying to remember um, what they were. But, you know, each of those has to be determined based on the Constitution, not based on abortion. Not based on what people think. Yeah, this is, so, this is so big. And I think for Christians, like, it's hard to think this way because, like, in some ways, I don't care what the law says. I want to do the right thing. But in, in other ways, like, the law doesn't care what you think. It only cares what it is. So if you don't think something's right, you have to change the law. You don't, you don't pretend the law does something it doesn't. You actually have to change it. And that's what the court's saying. Ed? Ed? Yeah, so Ed said, um, you know, a lot of people seem to have this idea that it, the world is good versus evil. And, of course, I'm good and they're evil. 
and, and that's not a Christian response. Yeah, and I think I did mention this, which is that um, you're no better than someone because of your view or because of your history, but even more deeply theologically on that is um, we are all evil, right? No one does good. No one seeks God. No one, uh, you know, all fall short of, the, short of the glory of God. So in a sense, we're all equally evil. And don't assume evil in your, in your opponent that's not there. So most people are really trying their hardest to do the right thing. And every single one of us fail in doing it. Right? So I think, you know, there, there, are, there are times when we can just say, that's evil. Right? And I think, I think that's good. God does that. Uh, but by and large, most of the people we're interacting with, they don't fall into that camp, even if they disagree on something as, as big as abortion. Um, so the no, uh, now what question is something that um, we have talked about a lot and prayed about a lot through the years. And um, I think... A lot of us think like, well, what can we do um, in regards to this issue? Uh, what can just, you know, your average Joe do about it? And um, a lot of this, I think, is addressed like, well, different layers of it. One is abortion not only affects, obviously, the life that has been lost, the, the baby that, that didn't get a chance to live, but it affects the families that will never receive those babies, right? It affects the moms and the dads and the grandparents that didn't get the child to welcome that baby in their families. Uh, that it leaves a lot of trauma behind. It leaves a lot of uh, broken hearts. I, I think that, if, if any, uh, very few women go into abortion with joy and gladness and come out of it with joy and gladness, right? It's not a something to celebrate. They might have a, a moment of relief of what they were saved from, but not joy in a celebration. So this is a huge issue that, that the church has the power to address, to do something about. Let's start with the women in our midst. Um, Every church has many, many women who have had abortions. That is just statistically true. So can we have a climate in our congregations where, where we acknowledge this? This is just a reality. Where is there is freedom for these women to, to talk about it, to seek healing. The dads, the dads that never got to be dads. They're, they're, they're always men who, always, who also mourn it deeply and who hardly ever get a voice in the matter, right? Um, pre or, or post. So to create this kind of family environment where, where we are going to talk about these things, where it's not going to be a taboo, where it's difficult, where it's hurtful, or yes, there is shame in it. Um, for the women, for most, there, there is a sense of shame, but there also can be healing and receiving. Um, it is, it's not only affecting even those families, but it's affecting the, the whole of the world, right? This is great, great trauma on the whole of the land because blood has been shed in this way. So you can start in your own little corner of the world having the conversations. You can start by praying with women. You can start by uh, seeking God about it. If this is your story, do seek healing. Uh, this, is, this is something that, that will impact the rest of your life. Family, this is part of my journey. This is part of my story. I have um, I, something that the Lord has had to heal in layers and layers and layers through time. And I know that the only way that this wound heals is when you go to Jesus, when you go to Jesus in community, and then you receive the healing that's coming to you. Also, let's, let's prevent. We have the ability to love well the young people 
the young people that one day will find themselves in these situations, will one day will think that they don't have the resources, internal or external, to, to um, have a baby, to raise a child. Um, but if they are part of, a, of a, a church community, of a body, of a healthy body that tells them, no, you can't do this. I know it's hard, but you can do this. Um, of course, to do this with, with kids that, that, do not, that are not part of the church body and tell them, I receive you, and I will walk with you. And, you know, the, what we do with the baby bottles, that's a good thing. That is one thing to do, yes. But let's face it, that's just very small, and there's not a whole lot of, of what, skin in the game when we do that. You get a little bit of uh, cash, you put it in, you put it there, eh, don't see it again, don't know what happened to it, with it, have no connection to the lives that is impacted in any way. But when you're walking with somebody and you're seeing it happen before your eyes, you're seeing that person choosing to have that baby, you're seeing the person again and again choosing to um, parent their child well, then now you have skin in the game. And now you can actually have a great impact in, in this issue. And, and this is for the women and for the young women and very much for the young men, right? So, of course, it starts with our own family, with the closest to us, being willing to have the difficult conversations since our kids are little, being very open about these things, naming them, having a, a culture where, yes, we can talk about sex, uh, where we can talk about, we can answer these, these kids' difficult questions, uh, we can address the confusion, we can be okay with that. And I, it, it, I know it can be a little scary at times. Like, sometimes I'm thinking, like, I, I gave, uh, we gave our kids, like, carte blanche, like, uh, you know, like, ask whatever, whatever, whenever, and we are going to answer it. Um, and then I was like, oh, my gosh, what did I just do? <laughs> Am I going to be ready? Um, but, man, no, it has, it has created a, uh, what I think is a, a healthy culture within our family that, that they also are willing to enter into that because they would say, well, they said that, but I'm, I'm not going to do it. Uh, where we talk about all sorts of things very openly, um, we, we live with the tension of the things that we don't understand well, uh, where we can say, I don't know the answer to that, but let's look into it some more. But you keep an open door. And then, obviously, then beyond your family. If you have children who have friends that are coming home, then open the door for conversations because there are a lot of kids who cannot talk about this, these things in their home. Um, and then if there are people uh, in your church, I know we don't have a whole lot of, of younger people in our church, well, I do pray that that will change, and this is part of it, is that we can have the open conversations, that we can understand that battle that they're fighting, the battle that we're fighting, but the battle that they're fighting, guys, it's just hard. It's hard. So that we're willing to say, hey, I'm here, and, and, and I can, let's talk, and I'll walk with you. Of course, walk with people not when they come to the point where I like, well, now I'm pregnant and I don't know what to do. Work with people and with kids when, when the, the stakes are, don't seem as high. Uh, so you have conversations with little kids when they're talking to you about their, their drawings and, and their trucks. Um, and you can talk with kids as they grow as, to the things that are happening with their friends and then the harder questions of life. Let's, um, let's understand that we all have, right where God has put us, a whole lot of agency and impact and power from the Lord to change things. And maybe you are not the person called to give speeches or to start a pregnancy resource center or anything like that. Maybe you're not that person. But you are certainly the person to live like this, to live like Jesus, um, to be a resource right where you put it, beginning with your family and then outward. To show yourself up 
uh, as yourself, as Jesus made you to be, as God designed you to be. You're not called to the places that you're not called to. You're called, however, to showing up yourself, showing up like Jesus wherever you are. Jesus who's compassionate. Jesus who is hands-on. Jesus who is truthful. Jesus who is bold. Um, And all that together to, to make the person that he is. So... As we go forward, even within our, our church body or wherever um, you, um, whatever you're connected to a church body, think about these things. What is your calling in regards to this issue? And again, abortion is many issues that converge into that point, right? Um, all the circumstances that lead a woman to choose that. Hard circumstances. Um, how can I, how can you be someone who, who, ha- who, can, who, can, who can make a change in this area? How can I love better? How can I show up differently? How can I also refrain from showing up in certain places if I am showing up uh, as not unwilling to hear, as lacking in compassion, uh, as being more intent on sharing my anger about the issue than in the whole of it. And yes, be angry. I get angry a whole lot of times. Be angry. Amen. Right? <laughs> but anger is this energizing emotion that God gave you to mobilize you to do something about it. So let it mobilize you to love better. Uh, let it mobilize you to say the right words and keep your mouth shut when you don't need to say it. To give generously, to use, yes, your finances, to use your hands, uh, your energy, to do what you can, whether it be directly with the uh, Pregnancy Resource Center, as I said, wherever you, wherever you are. All right. Well, I'm looking at the clock, and I know there's people downstairs getting food ready for us. So what I think we could do is I was going to ask you to pray for us. But uh, feel free to keep the conversation going, right? When we go downstairs, it doesn't have to end. Um, certainly, as, as every Sunday uh, that we gather downstairs, I'll, I'll be at a table. And if you want to talk about this, you can come right over, and we'll keep the conversation going or wherever you are. Not that you have to talk about this either. Feel free also to talk about other things. But I encourage you to let this be a time of meaningful connection. You know, more than just uh, a chit-chat hour over some bacon and whatever else is down there. I do know there's bacon. Um, but take this time to, to just engage around things that are important. Uh, so would you pray for us? And then we'll uh, pray for our food too. And then we'll head downstairs. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for being present with us, as you always are. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are our guide and comfort. Um, I've been talking about difficult things, Lord. Um, We acknowledge again that you are in control, that you understand these things perfectly, that your heart is for us, your heart is for this land. Your heart is also for the body of Christ. Your heart is for all of those who will come to you. The, your heart is for every single person that is embroiled in this uh, from one side or the other. That you are a good God. Lord, I pray that you will help us to, to see more of the way you see, to be willing to be challenged in how we see things, um, to hear people with compassion, to be willing to enter uh, with other people into, into, their, into their drama, into their difficult places, to get down on dirty love, Lord, to, to, to allow for the messiness to come into our lives, to not stay comfy um, because it's difficult or it's not none of my business. Lord, thank you that you modeled for us um, being a God who gets right 
down and dirty. Um, you came into the messiness of our brokenness, and, and you were willing to die on the cross for all of it. Lord, help us to enter into that more deeply, wherever we, wherever we happen to be now, to go forward a few more steps. Help us to have our hearts broken, Lord, for the brokenness of humanity, for my own brokenness, for the brokenness of, of everybody else. Help us to allow the sorrow to touch our hearts. Lord, help us also to then set our eyes in the joy, that joy set before us, so that because of that, we will enter into these hard places. Um, and Lord Jesus, I pray for, for the women uh, within our community who's, and men, families. Um, well, this, this is past, uh, part of their journey. And uh, I pray for the continued healing. I pray that we will be a community that can have those conversations lovingly, and uh, with understanding, and, and this will, you know, about all the things, about all the things, um, to have conversations with your heart and to see people with your heart. Father, that, that because of we are in the world and we follow you, that wherever we show up, there will be a difference. We'll be the salt and the light that you say already that we are. Father, we, we rest in you, in all the doing and all the things that we would, like for, we would like to be different in the world. We rest in you for them. As we partner with you, we rest and we trust you. Thank you, Father, that we're getting to have a meal together today. Thank you for the hard work of all the people that have been um, putting this together for us. Thank you for your faithful provision, and I pray this in your name. Amen.